Okay, so after, after Christmas, I went camping up on the East Coast. I was joining in on an annual camping trip that my dearest family friends take over Christmas and New Year. Not the Nankervises, another, another family friend. Um, they've been going to this spot for decades and they made me swear on my life not to tell anyone where it is. So all I can tell you is that we were on the south coast of New South Wales, somewhere between Marimbula and Bermagui. Um, so hopefully that's vague enough. Um, it was an incredible spot. I can understand why they want to keep it a secret. I felt lucky to be invited since there's this big unspoken agreement amongst all the families who camp there not to bring in any outsiders. It's very much frowned upon. Um, occasionally though, if someone is deemed sound of mind and honourable of heart, they're brought into the fold. So my friends are this family of three boys who I grew up with. They're essentially like my brothers and their mum, Alice, is my mum's best friend. Well, second best friend after Sue. <laughs> She's her second best friend, and um, they're not that close. Um, Alice's, Alice's brother um, is called Alistair, and we'll call him Uncle Al from now on. Um, he was also there camping with his kids, and there was more of them as well. There was uncles and aunties and cousins and heaps of extended family. Um, I was meeting so many new people and getting a full history lesson on every single person that I met. Um, what they do for work, where they grew up, who was married to who, who had gone bankrupt years earlier, who had, was barren and couldn't get pregnant, and then they adopted, and then once the adoption was finalised, they got pregnant naturally, and so they've got sort of these Ethiopian kids and then this white daughter, and it's all kind of... They all get along really well, though. Um, I, I knew more about these people in 24 hours than I know about some of my extended family. Um, I loved every second of it though. They welcomed me very joyfully into the pack. Cups of tea were constantly in my hands without having to ask. Arms around my shoulders, little kids perched on my lap. I was in heaven. Um, I ended up spending quite a lot of time with Uncle Al. We all remember him from earlier. Um, he's very funny and warm and always up for a chat. And one day it came out that Uncle Al was an old friend of my dad's. And my dad died when I was a kid before we met Alice and her boys and before we all became so close but apparently Uncle Al and my dad knew each other back when they were my age and they were <laughs> naughty little rascals. Um, they were both drummers in bands and toured together and carried on like pork chops. Um, I always love hearing stories about my dad especially from before I was born because when I hear a new story it's like um, I get a new piece of the puzzle. Um, feels like he's more alive in my memory and I can hear his voice more distinctly, things like that. So Uncle Al had plenty of stories to tell, all of them ridiculous. Um, apparently one of my dad's favourite jokes was to offer you a cup of tea and then he'd go and make it, or pretend to make it, and then sort of walk across to you and then do this big trip and drop the mug in your lap and you'd sort of scream that the mug would be empty. Um, and Al said that his extra little flair was he would fill the cup with boiling water and then tip it down the sink so that it was steaming as he passed it to you. It was a running theme in Dad's jokes was just make you look like an idiot. Um, so, oh, okay. Uh, Uncle Al actually reminds me a lot of my dad. He's very charming and funny. He loves performing for people and can really make you feel like part of the gang. They're two sides of the same coin in lots of ways. Um, Al's daughter, Billy, was there too, listening to all of the stories. 
Billy's just started high school and she's totally gorgeous, like the most beautiful little girl in the world. Um, when you look at baby photos of her and me, it's like we're twins. It's like the same girl and everyone says we just look the same. And, um, yeah, like mirror images. Um, they actually do say that. So. <coughs> Billy sits there silently, eyes never leaving Al, as he tells us about the day he heard my dad had died. He starts to cry kind of the way that some older guys cry, like they're a bit like surprised that it's happening. <laughs> Just sort of like wipe the way of the tears before you can notice. Um, and I come from a family of constant, constant violent criers. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm never quite phased by tears, but I looked over at Billy and she was sort of like, Dad, I've never seen you cry before. And he was kind of couldn't like get the words out and I went and hugged him and he said I just miss him that's all and I wanted to tell Al how much it meant to me um, hearing his stories and all of it but I kind of couldn't get the words out either so I was just like me too, me too. Um, but I guess Al if you're listening this is my um, after the fact way of letting you know I always miss my dad when I find a really beautiful camping spot when the waves are perfect and there's plenty of shade and a good spot for the hammock I find myself wishing I could bring him here to this secret spot and share it together. I went to sleep that night thinking about Dad and I might have dreamt of him chucking cups of tea into people's laps or messing around with Uncle Al, but I didn't end up sleeping for very long. In the middle of the night we woke to the sound of sirens. A bushfire nearby had broken its containment and was heading our way and the fireys had come to evacuate the whole camp. It was 4am on the last day of the year. Everyone sprang instantly into action. The camp was pitch black, with dozens of head torch stripes zigzagging along the ground. We spoke only when necessary. Can you help me lift this? Do you have any extra room in your car? The little kids all clustered together, sleepy and confused, but not really panicked. No one was really panicked yet. We were all frozen in that moment before panicked, still processing. Then the sky began to bleed. A thick red sky melted up from the horizon. We couldn't see the sun, the light seemed to come from everywhere all at once. Ash fell on us like snow, and black leaves drifted down on the wind, still hot from the flames. We all held a collective breath and kept moving, listening for the sound of crackling on the breeze. We packed up most of our camp, leaving behind the non-essentials. We drove out in convoy past abandoned tent poles and eskies, we drove south towards a town called Tarthra. We couldn't see too far ahead because of the smoke, but we knew we were driving the right way because the sky started to change. Slowly the red faded to orange and the orange to yellow. We arrived in Tarthra at around 7 a.m. and the town was slowly starting to wake up. We parked up outside the Tarthra Surf Lifesaving Club, which had been opened to the public as an evacuation center. The main evacuation hub was inland in Biga, where hundreds of people had gathered with their caravans, farm animals, and families. We felt safer staying by the ocean, and the Tarthra community seemed calm and steady in the midst of everything. In 2018, a huge fire had tore through their town. They all ended up on the beach, watching as the fire raged through. So this was nothing for the Tarthra locals. They were made of hard stuff. A couple of blokes were out walking their dogs under the orange sky. All oh, feels a bit deja vu, doesn't it, Bill? <laughs> You're right there, John. How's the family? <laughs> they laugh together as I pass them on the foreshore. That is not exaggerated. That is a direct quote. 
We registered our group of 17 at the surf club and found a spot in the corner. We brought our pillows and sleeping bags in and huddled together, exhausted. We slept a bit, read books, did some knitting. There was nothing to do, really, other than wait. They had the TV on constantly, with seven news showing alternating clips of ScoMo and the chief of the RFS updating the public on the fires. The day stretched on without any new or helpful information. We waited. The strangest part of it all was how cold it was. You'd think with the fire bearing down on us it would have been stifling hot, but we heard from someone at the surf club that the smoke had reached so many kilometres high up in the sky that it had like, created its own weather system. It was hot and windy all around us, but where we were was cold and still. It was like being in the eye of the storm. There was this wonderful woman, Loretta, running the show at the surf club. I don't know if she was a volunteer or worked there or where she came from, really, but she was very clearly in charge. <laughs> Loretta, just to paint you a picture, had an asymmetrical haircut <laughs> with a purple streak through it. She had a, um, a bedazzled lanyard with nothing on the end of it <laughs> and the brightest, whitest polo shirt I'd ever seen in my life. Loretta shone like a beacon of hope. She was talking to people all day long constantly. She never sat down once. And if you needed to ask her something, she would finish talking to the person before you. Be like, yep, no, great. And you can take care of that. Brilliant, yep, no, wonderful. And she'd close her eyes, take a deep breath, and turn to you. Put a hand on your arm and say, oh, and how are you, darling? And you'd just cry, like, instantly. Um, Loretta was utterly fabulous. She was making hourly announcements all day on the PA system. And the first, like, three minutes of the, every announcement was just figuring out the microphone. <laughs> At about five or six in the evening, Loretta announced that local families were offering their homes for people to stay in for the night. We got offered the empty home of a family who were up in Nimbin for Christmas and wouldn't be back for a week. Loretta's offsider, Jim, who, again no idea where Jim came from. He just sort of rolled in and had great energy. Um, he offered to drive us up to the house and show us where the spare key was. As we left, I turned around to thank Loretta for everything, but she was already on to her next group, talking in soothing tones and doing what Loretta did best. It's interesting to watch how people react in a crisis. <clears throat> I grew up in the golden age of dystopian fiction, the Hunger Games, Tomorrow When the War Began, Divergent. <laughs> um, I knew the survival narrative so well that this all felt strangely familiar. I started to look around at our group. <laughs> and wonder who it would be who would step up begrudgingly against their will to lead us through the crisis. Secretly, I really wanted that to be me. <laughs> whose dormant sexual tension would blossom into passionate love, which it did. Not me. I wish. Um, and who would kind of start to lose all sense of reality and just go a bit mad, um, which thankfully no one did. It wasn't that dramatic. Um, it never really is. We still had to do all the normal everyday stuff. We still had to feed ourselves, charge our phones, keep the little kids entertained. Meanwhile, underneath it all, it felt like the plates of the earth were shifting. 
it was so massive we couldn't see its edges and we couldn't take it in all at once. And we felt it, but we couldn't really articulate it to each other. So we spoke of normal things instead. We made shitty New Year's resolutions. We sang together on the floor of the stranger's house. Someone found a harmonica and a bottle of wine in the car. We took turns having showers, the first in weeks. By the time the clock struck midnight, we were all fast asleep on the kitchen floor. It was a new year and a new decade. The next morning, we received word that the road through to Canberra had opened. The only way back to Melbourne was to go through the mountains, up through Canberra, and back down the Hume, which was a long drive and would take us more than a day. We left in staggered convoy, cars full of dirty clothes, eskies, dogs, and kids. The drive through the, through the mountains was slow and scary. The smoke was so thick that we couldn't see beyond three cars in front of us, and at points we crawled along at five kilometers an hour. I drove with one of the cousins, Fabian. We listened to podcasts and ate almost a kilo of tamari almonds. <laughs> we took turns sleeping while the other drove. At a few points, we passed blackened trees and scorched earth, encasing the road on either side. We spoke very little. We didn't really know each other that well, and I didn't know what to say to him. It was scary, but I also felt sort of safe. There's something about being in a moving car that feels good like you're moving towards something, or at least moving away from something worse. In Canberra, we stopped for the night with friends. They had a big house with a studio out the back for the 17 of us to sleep in. Further away from everything we got, the more relieved and the more guilty I felt. I was heading, heading for home, but I felt like I should be turning around and going back for help. Like there was something we could be doing. A friend of mine from Naruma had been texting me and she said, the best thing to do is get out if you can so that the support and resources can all be directed towards the locals who need it at the most. I thought of wonderful Loretta and strange Jim and the family whose kitchen floor we'd slept on and I felt a little less guilty about leaving. We left Canberra the next morning sticky and tired. Someone told us that Canberra had the worst air quality in the world, the equivalent of smoking 35 cigarettes a day and we were all starting to feel it. Our throats were thick and our eyes stung sharply as we drove onto the Hume. I shared that leg of the drive with one of my surrogate brothers, Louis, and his Kelpie pup, Marla Brown. When we stopped for petrol, we swapped seats, each driving steadily while the other rested their eyes. The murky yellow-gray sky persisted as we drove across the state border. Marla Brown was in the back seat, resting her head on my shoulder as I drove. I thought in that moment that everything I really needed was in my car with me then. An old dear friend, a good dog, 40 gallons of water, and Stephen Fry reading the Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets <laughs> auto audiobook. It was comforting and familiar and essential. We were going somewhere and we were safe. As we drove past the signs for Seymour, my GPS alerted me that home was only a few hours away. I don't know if it happened suddenly or if it had been gradually changing and I'd only just noticed, but seemingly out of nowhere, I was driving under a blue sky. The sun shone brilliantly right above us and I could see the shadows of the cars as they drove past. The world had dimension again. There were shadows and highlights again after endless flat gray. It felt unsettling to see a blue sky. I didn't really trust it. I was relieved but apprehensive, like the blue sky wouldn't last. 
like more grey days would follow, which they did as it turned out. It was one of those moments where you feel so many things at once that you think you might burst. I felt so relieved and slightly sad and a bit empty and kind of hopeful and really sweaty and sort of <laughs> joyful and a bit guilty still and lots of other things. They all swarmed around inside me, filling my lungs and putting a lump in my throat. I turned to Louis, wanting to show him the sky, to celebrate and share the moment with him, but he was fast asleep, head rolled back, mouth wide open. <laughs> I thought of waking him, but he looked so peaceful, and honestly, I didn't mind having a moment to myself. I took a big shaky breath and kept driving towards home.